Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Independent talk. Proper talk. News talk. Talk radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. With the self-appointed revolutionary of reason, Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio as we reach the end of another incredible week of news, of views and political developments from Kiev to Brussels and from Washington to London. It's day 30 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, ladies and gentlemen, and President Joe Biden is banging on about accelerating our move to net zero. That's right, net zero. Never mind chemical weapons, never mind what's going on uh, in Moscow, in the Kremlin, never mind what's happening with Russian gas, never mind all of the big issues that are surrounding the war in Ukraine, the invasion by Russian forces at the behest of Vladimir Putin. No, this ridiculous old bloke losing the plot faster than we know. Sleepy has been in NATO HQ trying to work out what to do about Vladimir Putin, and after warning the Russian president not to use chemical weapons, he's now decided to launch himself at the climate change agenda, claiming now is as good a time as ever to stop being dependent on fossil fuels. Well, he might have a point, but surely this is not the time to make it. It's all very well, but surely stopping the killing of innocent people uh, is the West priority, isn't it, right now? Up first today, we've got Tobias Elwood, Chair of the Defence Select Committee, Tory MP, of course, as well. I'll be asking him if NATO is doing enough, uh, whether he thinks Boris Johnson is emerging out of this crisis as a proper statement and statesman. And finally, whether we should actually be telling the Germans and the Europeans that they should not be buying any more gas from Russia. 0344 499 1000. We'll be catching up with Richard Taylor later in the show with the news that the Justice Department in this country simply isn't fit for purpose. Dominic Raab has written a piece for the Telegraph today in which he reveals that 60% of victims don't report their crimes and a third drop out of prosecutions altogether simply because of delays in the system. And we'll be talking to former government advisor Robert Dingwall as well as pleased to end COVID rules in hospitals come pouring in. Mark Bukowski is checking in as well with the latest news on the royal family. Is the brand in danger of disappearing as more and more Commonwealth countries appear to be happy to carry on without them? Oh, and Megan's got a new promo out as well for her podcast. Isn't that great? 0344 499 1000. We'll also be talking e-scooters, P&O ferries and an Oxford council that thinks we should all travel everywhere by train to save the planet. Good luck with that. You can't get any trains anywhere into London today. Uh, If you're worried about strike action, that's what's going on. If you're trying to get anywhere, do let us know. We'll tell everybody else if it's difficult. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet, also now available on television. It's Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
Now, we've been watching uh, Ursula von der Leyen and Joe Biden making a joint press conference today. The US president uh, saying basically uh, we want a deal to reduce Europe's dependence on Russian fossil fuels. The reason that they're dependent on Russian fossil fuels, of course, is because they didn't want to make their own fossil fuels because that was bad for the, gov- for the environment. It was bad for the planet. So instead, they bought the stuff in from somewhere else, meaning that basically... Germany in particular, and the European Union in general, have been bankrolling the Russian government, and Vladimir Putin in particular, uh, to invade other countries. Absolutely hopeless. Let's talk to Tobias Elwood, Conservative MP and Chair of the Defence Select Committee. Tobias, very good morning to you. Good morning. Um, It seems slightly ironic to me that uh, Joe Biden has used this today as an opportunity to talk about accelerating our plans for going towards net zero. I mean, I kind of know what he's trying to do. But it's not really, shouldn't be, should it, the main focus of what NATO are doing today? No, we shouldn't lose sight of that. That's a long-term interest of the entire planet. Absolutely right. But right now, the focus must be on the fact that there's state-on-state war in Europe. And I think this NATO summit of Western leaders that took place uh, yesterday in Brussels certainly helped on the learning curve in getting us out of this peacetime mindset, if I can call it that, Uh, you know, 30 years since the last Cold War. Um, we've been too hesitant, we've been too risk-averse. We are looking a little bit more confident, a little bit more robust, a little bit more willing to stand up to Russia, but we've got a long, long, long way to go. And, you know, the first test came yesterday, in fact, on whether we move from defensive weapons to offensive weapons. And it was absolutely right for the Prime Minister to push this. And I'm really sorry that other NATO members did not support the idea of answering Ukraine's request for tanks, for planes, for other um, hardware that they know they need in order to push the Russians back. No, exactly right, because there's been some argument, has there not, in NATO as to what constitutes a breach of whatever the deal is and whether the red lines uh, would prevent the UK in particular from supplying more hardware or from supplying more money or more weapons or whatever, Uh, because some European countries seem to think, or some NATO countries seem to think, that that's already overstepping the mark. Well, this is where we need to get back into that... uh, sort of Cold War mindset, that ability to make proportionate responses uh, whilst controlling what's called the escalatory ladder. Mm. At the moment, we're making this vast assumption, this actually ignorant assumption, that anything robust that you do to stand up to Russia in Ukraine will lead to World War Three. And actually, that's playing in to Putin's hand. It's yeah. actually allowing him to exploiting our weaknesses, our red lines themselves. I think if NATO itself isn't winning, or, or more specifically, the United States or France are not willing to endorse uh, upgrading the weapon systems that we push in to uh, Ukraine, then Poland and Britain should go it alone. Uh, time is not on our side. I make that very, very clear. Yes, Putin uh, is is going to cause as much harm. He's going to actually crush the country as best as he can uh, within a time frame. And the only way that we can stand up to this is by getting more hardware into Ukraine. Mm. I mean, you know a thing or two about military strategy, uh, Tobias. The way the Russians appear to be operating is, as you say, to move in uh, on a sort of landmass and completely and utterly wreck it and ruin it. So that, I mean, a lot of people have said to me, it's all very well saying that Russian, uh, uh, the Russian tanks are rolling in, but they're not being terribly effective. But they're being very effective at flattening the place. Yes. And this is a different sort of tactics, which focuses on decimating the civilian population. Complete breach of Geneva Conventions, uh, causing war crimes and indeed a form of genocide. Mm. And we have to ask ourselves, how many pictures of cities like Mariupol must we watch before the general public say, 
we need to actually do more. We need to step in in some form or other to support the Ukrainians. And you touched on something very interesting. We built this, uh, I think, uh, impression that Russia had upgraded its capabilities, its forces, its doctrine and so forth. But actually, its communications are not working well. Its logistics chains are failing. Uh, the ability for sergeants and below uh, in their armed forces construct to make decisions is not there. They have to wait for orders for up on high. And it's been uh, illustrated how appalling they've actually performed. So they're resorting what you just touched on, which is bombing uh, from afar, using their artillery pieces, their planes and so forth, to then flush out entire cities to get the individuals to move you know, in their millions to move out the country because then that becomes easier for them to control in the aftermath. Yes. And as far as the, uh, uh, the sort of diplomatic solutions to all of this are concerned, as you say, Tobias, there's got to be somewhere in between um, sort of World War Three and not doing anything, hasn't there? Oh, completely. And this is where you need to have a, a more robust mindset and, and, and the ability to do international statecraft. This requires you know, looking Russia in the eye. We did it back in the Cuban Missile Crisis. We need to recognize that we shouldn't be spooked uh, by the rhetoric coming out of the Kremlin, but we should stop announcing what we won't do. So we saw a little improvement yesterday, but our entire body language at the moment is still risk averse. We need to recognize that this isn't also just about Ukraine. We've entered a new era of insecurity because don't forget China is silently behind backing Russia itself. So even that uh, budget uh, statement that we had a couple of days ago, no mention whatsoever of defense spending at all. They could have used even just smoke some mirrors or indeed just to sort of mention a little bit of, of energy going into our defenses. That would have been a diplomatic message to the Russians to say, look, we're going to be upgrading uh, our hard power capabilities. We're going to be stepping forward because that's what Britain does. Yeah, absolutely right. And what about the NATO kind of axis, if you like? Because if it were the case that Britain, Poland would, <laughs> would end up going alone, what would that mean then, do you think, for NATO? Well, uh, NATO is a, an alliance, but it is a voluntary alliance. And uh, we've seen NATO operations in the past. You have to be a coalition of the willing. But there absolutely are willing nations within Europe that want to do more to support Ukraine. And we shouldn't be pegged back by those other nations that are saying, let's not do more because we're a bit timid, we're a bit concerned where this might go. We need international le leadership. We need international statecraft. And there's a, uh, an opportunity to, for Britain to step forward. And as far as the, uh, the future goes with the United Nations, I've been talking about this pretty much all week, you know, because <coughs> of the fact that Russia and China sit on the Security Council, it seems that the United Nations is either incapable or unwilling to do anything here. Well, the United States Nations have served us well, uh, but we've, I think, ended an era of you know, uh, liberal uh, constructs that was created after the Second World War. The, not just the uh, UN, but other international institutions uh, are now not now strong enough to hold up to errant nations. So they absolutely need uh, addressing. But we've known this, actually, for a couple of decades now. We've known this since mm. China started to manipulate the World Trade Organization, the World Health Organization during COVID and so forth but nobody's bothered to try to repair it. Now, one part of the UN does work function well, and that's the UN General Assembly. Mm. So that's bypassing the UN Security Council. That's where everybody gets a vote. And the world actually is very much against Russia. That's where I'd go if you want any legislation uh, concerning Ukraine. And is it possible, do you think, that Vladimir <laughs> Putin would bow to any kind of pressure 
uh, as it were, from condemnation to a vote in the United Nations um, General Assembly to even, you know, some kind of sanction from NATO. He doesn't appear to be taking too much notice at the moment. No, you're absolutely right. He's there and he will try and survive as best as he can. But the message that you'd be sending to all those in the Kremlin, the oligarchs, the generals and so forth, is that there is no future with Putin remaining and they themselves have to get rid of him. Mm. And that is eventually what I think will happen. But he's so embedded in his own security apparatus, in his own intelligence structures, his own uh, authoritarianism, that that will take a while to uh, to occur. Mm. In the meantime, he's going to cause su such devastation in Ukraine, stooping to ever uglier methods uh, to actually to provide a, a win. He cannot afford to fail uh, in Ukraine. Otherwise, he's out sooner than he thinks. Absolutely. And as far as the actual hardware situation is concerned, we know that Ukraine needs some more weapons. They're getting those weapons. What about the Russians' weapons supply? Is that coming thick and fast still, or are they in danger of, of maybe needing um, a sort of refill, if you like? Um, they'll be looking at their own logistics supply chains as well, in the same way that everybody else is. But they're resorting to very mundane methods to cause the damage. They're, this is why some of the artillery systems that they're using are very, very haphazard. They just need to hit the city. The city is a big target. They don't need to have um, high-tech um, smart missile systems in order to do that. And their stocks and stockpiles of that are absolutely huge. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as the um, uh, the way that Boris Johnson has conducted himself during this particular um, war, I mean, I think he's done rather well. Um, you and I probably both were quite critical of, Tobias, of, uh, of him, Tobias, when uh, Partygate was going on uh, towards the end of the kind of the COVID restrictions being lifted. Um, but he certainly seems to be quite statesmanlike at the moment. Um, I would agree with that. I would uh, hesitate from taking stock of people's performances in the middle of what's going on. We need to focus on what's required uh, rather than doing a stock check on, on performance itself. You know, it's a bit like pulling a plant out and checking the roots every so every so often to make sure a plant is, is growing. Yeah. We are getting better, but, but boy, this is a, a steep learning curve, not just for Britain, but for the West. But I'm pleased that, that uh, Prime Minister is one of the very few nations that were absolutely pushing for greater weapon systems to be given to the Ukrainian people. Mm. And we're hearing more and more that, uh, you know, obviously the warnings about chemical weapons uh, from Joe Biden's side and about obviously any kind of nuclear weapon explosions as well. Um, are you are you OK with the idea that, uh, that that won't happen? I mean, do you think that we can be reasonably sure that that won't happen? I'm, it's so extreme and there are so many um, uh, proportionate um, responses that are in between uh, those two positions that you'd be able to manage that escalatory ladder in a far better way than I think has been suggested publicly. We need more confidence to be able to stand up knowing that actually that's a couple of, of uh, a, a number of steps away. We need more confidence and be, in, in, and be more robust. Otherwise, as I said earlier, Putin will take advantage of our timidity. And you wrote a piece in House magazine uh, earlier, or you, you tweeted it out earlier this week, about defence spending. Um, We've just had a budget from Rishi Sunak in which, um, you know, he's made a couple of tax cuts. He's also put some national insurance um, uh, increases on as well. Have we got money for defence spending? You know, if the Chancellor, if there's a need, um, if there's a need, then money is provided. If a need, money comes, you know, is, is, is there. What I would say is that when it comes to food security, when it comes to energy, when it comes to fuel, why are those prices all going up? is directly because of what's going on in Ukraine. You cannot disassociate 
the two. You solve, sort out Ukraine and some of the pressures on our internal economy are then actually resolved. And we need to make sure we provide the link the two. The more that we lean into you solving Ukraine, the quicker we get our economy back onto the repair. That's as clear. And as, as I say, if we lean into this, we can make it happen. Excellent. Let's uh, stay where you are, uh, if you wouldn't mind, Tobias. We're going to come back to you. We're trying to make the line slightly better. I want to talk to you some more about uh, what Rishi Sunak did this week, what the Chancellor uh, has set out, and how we do uh, uh, better with the cost of living. This is Talk Radio. A hollowed-out volcano of common sense. Listen on your smart speaker. Watch it live on your smart TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, also now available, of course, on television as well. You simply have to do one thing. Go to the App Store, download the app, Talk Radio TV, or, of course, you can go to talkradio.tv uh, and do it that way. And then you can watch us on Apple TV, on Rakuten, Samsung TV+, Roku, YouTube, Amazon Fire TV. Watch us uh, on a watch. Watch us on an iPad. Watch us on a television. You can watch us on all manner of different devices. Watch us on a phone, if you like. Uh, but you'll be able to watch all the way through the day. And we've got Ian Collins from one, Rob Rinder, up on Friday from 4 and of course uh, you've then got Kevin O'Sullivan from 7 uh, James Well from 10 it's all going on uh, and all the way back round to uh, Jeremy Carr on a Friday on breakfast and Julie Hartley Brewer of course Monday to Thursday we were talking to um, Tobias Elwood a little bit earlier on I wanted to get him back on but his line wasn't great uh, to talk a little bit about the budget a little bit about how um, the standard of living is affecting everybody we'll still take your calls on that though because we weren't able to get him back unfortunately um, has the week turned out better for you or worse as a piece of on the front page of the Times today, uh, which says Sunak's tax cuts are set to cost the wealthy £3,000 a year. Wealthier families will be £3,000 off this year and a million people will be pushed into poverty. This is according to uh, the Resolution Foundation, which is a think tank, which has had a look at the numbers and done the crunching. We'll be talking about that later on. We'll be talking as well about e-scooters and why they need to be outlawed because they're becoming more and more dangerous. We've had deaths. We've had accidents. We've had people driving around at 50 miles an hour uh, on roads, which are frankly not suitable for people standing on a very small piece of plastic or metal and hurling themselves around at high speed without any protection whatsoever. Absolutely extraordinary. Before we do all that, though, let's go uh, and speak to Professor Robert Dingwall, Professor of Sociology at Nottingham Trent University, former government advisor, of course. Uh, wasn't exactly what you might call enthusiastic about lockdowns. Uh, there's talk now that hospitals should lift all COVID restrictions. I, for one, am rather surprised they haven't done it already. Let's find out uh, what he thinks. Professor Robert, very good morning to you. Oh, good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, it beggars belief uh, sometimes when you look around and go... What is it that uh, you haven't spotted about the fact that COVID appears to have become much less dangerous than we at first thought it was two years ago, maybe even 18 months ago, maybe even a year ago? Um, an awful lot of hospitals, I'm told, have still got sort of um, beds spaced two metres apart, meaning there's not as many beds in the hospital wards as there ought to be. They've never quite returned to normality. They're still imposing all sorts of COVID restrictions. And the NHS is still waiting to somehow do something about all of these terribly long um, waiting lists? Yes, I think the this is really the, the last holdout of this kind of rule-based approach, mm. rather than recognising that it's probably more appropriate to give hospitals a, a good bit more latitude in looking at their local circumstances, the local infection rates, looking at the infection control issues that they actually have, uh, rather than trying to have a one-size-fits-all regime, which is uh, handed down from uh, 
from Westminster. Mm. Um, I think that, I mean, clearly hospitals have a problem. We have a, an ongoing problem in the UK with infection control in our hospitals, partly because we've been obsessed with building the sort of open wards that uh, Florence Nightingale favoured, mm. rather than moving to single rooms in the way that um, many other uh, developed countries would uh, would prefer. And that, that intrinsically sets up problems uh, about uh, hospital-acquired infection. Mm. Uh, but uh, I think local management could be given a lot more discretion uh, and really sort of look at their own situation, look at the risks for themselves and to, uh, where it's appropriate, to um, re relax those restrictions in the interests of uh, getting patients through safely uh, and, and quickly mm. uh, and to do something about uh, at least not adding to the backlog if, if not actually making inroads on it. Yeah, because we heard only last week from a couple of doctors who were saying, you know, um, even though this new variant which is coming, which I think we're calling now Delta Cron, um, might be completely and utterly harmless effectively to most people, we must still be very careful that it doesn't overwhelm the NHS. And you're kind of going, are we just going to have this narrative for the rest of time? Are we always going to be told that we mustn't overwhelm the NHS? Which, by the way, was never overwhelmed, even at the height uh, of all the COVID infections. Well, indeed, uh, I think it is a question of the tail wagging the dog. The, the health service is there to serve society, not the other way around. Mm. Uh, but it, it probably is the case that we've we've run a very tight ship in the health service for the last 10 years or so. Um, we run our hospitals much closer to capacity in normal times than most other developed countries, um, especially in, in the winter period. It helps to keep the costs down, it helps keep taxes down, uh, but it lacks resilience when you get a challenge like this. And uh, I think over a period of time we are going to have to invest in uh, providing additional capacity, providing more flexibility, but you can't just turn a tap on and you know, it takes 10 years to build a hospital, it takes 10 years to produce a, a, quali a qualify, fully qualified uh, specialist doctor. Mm. Um, so that we we do need to think our way through that and we uh, we need to recognize that we shouldn't be imposing unreasonably tight restrictions where they're not necessary no i think that's right and as far as the way that uh, the public health has operated over the course of the last couple of years. I mean, we keep telling uh, ourselves that we're going to learn lessons from it. You know, the lockdown um, now appears to have been um, over-enthusiastic at best, possibly inadvisable at worst. Um, will there be lessons learned, do you think? Are you confident about that? Well, I think there will be a continuing debate for, for some years. I mean, at the moment, the, the problem is that the, the people having the arguments have got sort of entrenched positions you know this is what i this is what i said two years ago and i'm not changing from it uh we may have to wait for a new generation of scientists to come along mm. uh, who can look at this in a more dispassionate way um because they're not embroiled in the um, the sort of passions that have been uh, aroused in the scientific and medical communities for the last couple of years right because, I mean, there does seem to be now quite a big chasm between those um, people who perhaps like yourself or take a bit more of a pragmatic approach to what we did and what we perhaps should have done um, and those who seem to be still fanatical um, about changing the behaviour of people. Well, yes, uh, I think 
but there's been this resistance uh, throughout to doing proper evaluations of the so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions, the, the sort of social and behavioural uh, interventions, as if they, you know, we've we've done a great job with the science. We've uh, we've done sort of brilliant clinical trials of new therapies and new vaccines, but we haven't really compiled evidence of the same quality on on the lockdowns, on the social distancing, on on the face masks, and and all of those things, as if somehow they don't matter. Uh, and what I think we've come to realise is that they do matter, and they do matter a lot, and we. You know, we should not be implementing policies in the absence of evidence. Uh, you know, they may look commonsensical to some, but often that's because they haven't fully thought through the, the downsides and the disadvantages and the costs that are associated with them. Mm. Yes, I think that is the difficulty, isn't it? And I mean, there are still people who, uh, not many, I don't think anymore, but still people who are working from home, still people who are kind of uh, wearing masks, people who are still perhaps changing their behaviour and, and maybe will never go back to the old normal. Um, why do you think that is? Well, clearly a, a very high level of fear and anxiety has been created over the last couple of years. And I mean, some of that has been <clears throat> inflated by the... Um, the sort of messaging from governments, the messaging from public health, the messaging from local government. And, and it's going to take some time for that to subside, uh, even if it's accepted that a more proportionate approach would have been desirable. And, and it, that may not necessarily be a bad thing, Mike. I mean, it, it means that we have a sort of soft landing rather than a, a sort of cliff edge where, you know, the entire population sort of changes its behaviour on mm. a particular day. Yeah. Uh, I mean, clearly, I think there are some people who you know, may need a little bit of specialist um, psychological help to, uh, you know, to readjust. But uh, what I'm sort of seeing is that you know, the, uh, you know, the, the levels, of, the levels of, of obsessive compliance are, are sort of gradually dis decreasing. Mm. I mean, every week when I go to Sainsbury's, you know, there are fewer and fewer people wearing masks. Yeah. And I, I mean, I wouldn't say that we should introduce a ban or, or anything like that but clearly people are beginning to feel more comfortable yeah. uh, and, and, and I mean I was on the tube this case. morning I was on the tube this morning for the first time uh, this week and they're still putting out um, a tannoy message saying um, please wear a face covering yeah I mean the supermarkets have stopped doing that which is uh, which is interesting um, I, I mean, I've been sort of using public transport around Nottingham and yeah, you know, the posters are still there, but there's nothing. Uh, there's, there's nothing else by way of, of enforcement. Uh, I think that you know, it will take a while for people to get around to taking the posters down. I mean, I think there are still still a few bus timetables up in my neighbourhood, which are about five years old, which nobody's ever got around to replacing. Yeah. You know, I'm sure we will be seeing these things for a good while to come, but they'll just fade into the background. Yes, I dare say. And and finally, uh, Professor, if I was to ask you whether lock I know it's a bit of a, a broad-ranging question, uh, but were the lockdowns that we did necessary in every case, do you think? Well, I think the first lockdown is understandable as a reaction to an emerging threat, which nobody really fully understood, uh, and where, in a sense, there was this, this need to... You know, to do something um, because 
you know, this any new virus, potentially it's an existential threat. You know, it might be the one that's going to come along and wipe us all out. However, in a, cheery a, in a historical perspective, this is not a bad pandemic. You know, if you look at the really big pandemics of the uh, of the ancient world of the of the Middle Ages, you know, they were killing something like thirty to fifty percent of the population mm. of Europe, and it was clear from a very early point that that was never going to happen with COVID. Um, uh, but I think that the novelty of this, the um, some of the stuff that was coming out of China, and I think we we should now be a lot more sceptical about some of those video images that were presented mm. very early on. I, I mean, it's understandable why you would get this sort of dramatic reaction in the first couple of months. Beyond that, I think the pretty much the only thing that, in my view, and this is a personal view um, based on my reading of the evidence, probably the only thing that's made a big difference to transmission has been the working from home. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, nothing else has really had very much impact or at least not sufficient impact to sort of justify um, some of the uh, some of the restrictions and the, um, the, you know, the, the, the messaging that's going on around it. No, sure. Um, Professor uh, Robert Dingwall, thank you very much indeed. Professor of Sociology there at Nottingham Trent University talking about the lockdowns. Were they really necessary? Were they worthwhile? Probably not in all cases. More and more people are now coming to that conclusion. More and more people are beginning to ask the question, why did we do it? And what did we do it for? Particularly now that we've got figures that are coming out suggesting that actually more people may have died as a result of the lockdowns than they did from COVID. 0344 499 1000 is the number. John says this fuel, energy, cost of living prices were going up long before the Ukrainian conflict. This is just a convenient excuse. I think that's right. Uh, the energy crisis was already well underway long before Vladimir Putin even thought about putting uh, his feet and his boots into Ukraine. Um, and Brad says this. Oh, dear, Mr. Elwood, Tobias Elwood, that is, the hawk demanding Britain gets involved in another foreign war. When will we learn we ain't the world's policeman? Well, we shall see. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk Radio. We'll take your calls next. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Talk Radio. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio as we reach the end of another incredible week. There's been all kinds of stories, uh, all manner of telephone calls, all manner of controversies. Uh, we've had another plank of the week, of course, as well. Richard Taylor joined us for that. He joins us in this hour as well, political commentator, host of Rich Politics, because there's a couple of problems that we need to discuss. One uh, is the problem with the Justice Department. Dominic Raab has basically said that more or less it's not fit for purpose because 60% of people uh, who apparently are victims of crime don't even bother reporting it and one of the reasons they don't bother reporting it is because they know that nothing is going to happen you might remember uh, I think it was last week when one of those oligarchs houses was occupied by a load of eco squatters who decided that they would take it back for the people um, they sent about 50 police vans down and about 200 police officers to get these characters out Imagine ringing them and saying, I've just been burgled. Any chance you can send me somebody to come and have a look at the fingerprints? Oh, no, can't do that. We've got any, we've got any people. 
haven't got enough staff. No, I can't do that. Absolute rubbish. No, no plans at all uh, to do that whatsoever. Uh, and also, once you actually get into the justice system, there's a pretty good chance that the case won't go forward. It'll get delayed. Uh, you'll be waiting years to see any kind of justice. You might never see justice. And an awful lot of people drop out of the system and don't even bother pursuing it. So there's something very wrong. If you're a criminal in this country, there's no real incentive to stop committing crime because you're pretty sure you ain't going to get caught. And if you do get caught, you're pretty sure nothing bad will happen to you. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number to call. Uh, we're also still talking about uh, Joe Biden and Ursula. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Von der Leyen uh, over there in Brussels, they've decided that today is a good day to say we should keep net zero in mind, very much in mind, as we reconstitute our reliance on Russian gas. Uh, what we should do uh, is go faster and quicker and more ruthlessly towards net zero. When are they going to give up with this rubbish, this absolute nonsense, for heaven's sake? 0344 499 1000. Also, Richard's in Wales. Uh, they're going to get rid of masks finally under old uh, Commandant Drakeford, apparently. Uh, they're going to say no more masks required. Are they going to do away with the COVID rules altogether? in the entire country of the United Kingdom. Also, we will be talking to Ben Clatworthy from The Times coming up in this hour as well about P&O ferries and what happens next. 0344 499 1000. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, it was only a short while ago that Richard Taylor made his way to a very busy London. Daniel was on earlier saying he couldn't find a parking spot. Too many people here. Um, Old uh, Richard couldn't find the office, even though it's next to the biggest building in London. Richard, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Uh, good morning, Michael. Great to be back with you this morning. <laughs> very good uh, first appearance on Plank of the Week. I think uh, uh, you did very well, so thank you for that. Uh, that's, I appreciate uh, that's, that. That's out there now on YouTube if you want to go and find it. Let's kick things off, Richard, with Wales, because we're hearing this morning that uh, uh, Drakeford's had some kind of uh, road to Damascus conversion and decided you don't need to wear a mask anymore. Well, he's had half a conversion because there's been a written statement by the Welsh government that's talked about extending some of those restrictions or the powers at least to extend those restrictions up until September 2022, Mike. And there's two provisions there. There's Section 38, Section 82 for people who are into that kind of thing. And one of them is to do with 
businesses who've not been able to pay their rent so they can't get evicted. So that's that's a good provision, I suppose, to keep for businesses who have struggled during the pandemic, who have not been able to open because of the draconian measures put forth by the Emperor Mark Drakeford. But the other provision, I think, is Section 38, talks about education, training and childcare. Mm. And I've read the statement and my understanding of the statement is it still gives ministers in Wales the power to reimpose restrictions in schools, which we've seen, which we've seen the detrimental effect that's had on so many children in Wales and across the UK, they're still maintaining those powers based on information from the chief medical officer. Should the transmission rate get higher, mm. it's like Drakeford can't let go of these restrictions. He's like that character of Lord of the Rings, you know, my precious, my ring, you know, he just won't let it go. You know, I mean, it's, it seems, and not just here in Wales, but Sturgeon in Scotland yeah. and in Northern Ireland, they maintain them. So while England England today is scrapping all COVID restrictions. Well, it did as of midnight last night. Yeah. Here in Wales, the Emperor Mark Drakeford wants to keep some of those powers in, I suppose, in reserve, just in case things get worse. But let me read you the bottom of the written statement, yeah, Mike, because this is interesting. It says, this is a very much a contingency measure. We are not planning or expecting to use these provisions in the six-month extension window unless necessary. Well, I've heard that before from the First Minister, and he's normally gone back on it. So I've got no faith in him whatsoever. But hey, listen, we've got to celebrate. End of end of coronavirus act. It's gone. That's one good thing, at least in England. And let's hopefully see the back of it. No masks here in Wales, apart from certain settings, Mike, healthcare and in hospitals, etc. But we're seeing the back of it. But quite frankly, I was listening to the show a little bit earlier. Most people are not wearing masks no, anymore. They're really you know, not. They've, they've given up on it. They've given. But, up I mean, there's it. still a problem in hospitals. There's still a problem. It seems to me in GP surgeries, where an awful lot of people still tell me they can't get in uh, or they're not being seen when they want to be seen. They get told that they can have a telephone. Conversation conversation or they can have a video consultation if they want but they can't actually go inside and in hospitals i'm told they've still got these ridiculous distancing measures going on which means that there's not as many beds in there as there should be because they all have to be two meters apart it's mad isn't it yeah well i, th I think the problem we've got with the nhs here in the United kingdom across the board in devolved nations as well is our hospitals are so old and ancient that the way they've been spaced out and ventilation is so poor. And I know in Wales, there was a time when the, the uh, infection rate was the highest and people were catching it, uh, the coronavirus that is, when they were going into hospital. Yeah. So they were going in with a broken leg and catching mm. coronavirus actually in the hospital, yeah. oh, the yeah. place where they're supposed to be safe. Well, that's it. So, I mean, many, many people caught coronavirus in hospitals, much more than uh, they ever caught um, in restaurants or bars or supermarkets. I mean, that was the, if you wanted to get coronavirus for sure, go to a hospital. <laughs> It was literally one in four people in Wales caught coronavirus in, in hospital when they were there. And, and the hospital years in the NHS, I don't know if you've seen the report out yesterday by the BBC talking about that Wales for the 21st consecutive years hit the worst record ever on waiting lists. And mm. we've been like this before the pandemic. Yes. And it's just incredible us to realise that the NHS, a service that's there for everybody at the point of need, no longer exists in the way that an Iron Bevan, a good old Welshman, set it up in the first place. And it's a tragedy. And mm. something really needs to happen with the NHS. It, Throwing money at it, Michael, is not the answer. No. Well, the NHS of, in Wales, know. of course, is almost held up by any Tory minister who gets attacked by Keir Starmer because it's the Labour Party that's been ruining the, the NHS in Wales, not the Tories. Yeah, it's a devolved issue, and we've seen it here with Matt Drakeford. He has a record of blaming Westminster when it comes to things going wrong in Wales. You know, they'll take all the praise when things are done right, but then when it goes wrong, it's Westminster's fault. And even to the point now where there's going to be a public inquiry, which mm. I know... Uh, 
uh, that Boris Johnson set out on the 15th of December, I think, an inquiry into uh, into the coronavirus, uh, you know, how things were handled and everything else. But here in Wales, he's avoided scrutiny, the scrutiny because he's pushed that onto Westminster. So there'll be no independent Welsh inquiry into how it was handled here in Wales. And I want to remind your viewers and listeners, Mike, that the way that the, the hospitals and Matt Drakeford handled the, the, the pandemic here in Wales was absolutely appalling. At one stage, we had the highest rate of deaths in the whole of the UK. And yet he was boasting how successful the vaccine rollout was. So there needs to be an inquiry. There are bereaved families calling for it. I spoke to a woman yesterday who sadly lost her son during lockdown, who sadly, his name was Benjamin, who committed suicide at the age of 25. Mm. And there are so many stories, Mike, which I know you've heard as well on the show of people who've lost loved ones or not been able to attend funerals of loved ones. There is so much we need to look at. The modelers. Who chose the modelers? Why did they get it so wrong? Why were figures not promoted? You know, why were figures given by mainstream media, by the BBC in particular, why were they confusing people with people from COVID with COVID? There needs to be an investigation, a full independent inquiry into all of these issues and why mainstream media seem to be blocked from saying anything against the government narrative. Yeah, well, I mean, it used to be that way. Um, it wasn't so much that they were blocked, I think. It was more that they didn't want to go against it because they thought uh, that they'd swallowed the Kool-Aid and they thought it was all right. I mean, we're already hearing now um, people like Chris Whitty even admitting that actually maybe the lockdowns weren't such a great idea. Well, I wish he'd thought of that when he started imposing them instead of, you know, waiting until it was all over to tell us, oh, I might have made a mistake. Well, it's, it's all very well. It's not just a mistake. It's a bloody catastrophe. Yeah. And those of us who were speaking out against it at the time over the last two years, we've been cancelled, smeared, demonised, all those things. Oh, now, yeah. the people that we were calling out now, now are jumping on the bandwagon and saying, oh, yeah, you know, maybe lockdowns didn't work. Maybe the impact that it had on society wasn't a good one. We've got all these behavioural scientists, uh, Chris Whitty and all these kind of people coming out now, seem to be changing their tune. Mm. Is it is it because they're afraid of you know the consequences once an inquiry is made as to how things were handled? You know, but there needs to be some form of accountability. I know our our minds are taken over with other issues right now on Ukraine and the war and everything else, Mike. But we can't forget this. We mustn't forget this because no. these were people's lives. And I think that's important to remember. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I will, for one, be very, very uh, studious in my pursuit of these characters because I want to make sure that they never have the opportunity to do it again. Never mind actually, you know, um, apologise for what they did do, but to make sure that they can't ever do it. I don't think the public will stand for it anymore. Because I think mostly as you look around, I mean, I came in this morning, big announcement on the tube, you know, please wear a face covering. Almost everybody I could see wasn't wearing one. No, when I was down for Plank of the Week earlier, I, I, I noticed that as well. I was on the tube and coming back was a few times to London, as you right. know, Mike. And I, I noticed it. I, I can see a, a complete change. But here in Wales, we've been a bit behind that. We've lagged a bit simply because of the way Drakeford has handled it. I'm sure Scotland's the same and Northern mm. Ireland as well. But I noticed it myself. I think people have got to a point where they're taking personal responsibility. They realise that this virus isn't as deadly as it was first made out. We were scared at the first lockdown. Of course, we had a professor on earlier this morning talking about it's understandable. We didn't know what it was, so we locked down. Everybody got it. But I think more and, people, more, and more people were waking up to the reality of what was happening, Mike, and began questioning and for those who started questioning the government narrative or those who were involved in making those decisions, they were demonised. They were cancelled. They were called all sorts of anti-vaxxers and all kinds of crazy tags that were put on them. And there was this sense that, hang on a minute, we're just asking a question. And if you can't question it, I've always said you can't trust it. 
Yeah. There should always be a room for discussion and debate, Mike. Absolutely right. Let's talk a bit about the justice system. I don't know what it's like in Wales, but the waiting lists for court cases are even longer here uh, in England than they are for the NHS. And people tell me, people in the, in the law business, like barristers and, and solicitors, they say that the backlog of cases is absolutely horrendous. We learned today from Dominic Raab that 60% of people who are victims of crime don't even bother reporting it. Yeah, it's not a devolved issue here in Wales, so it's part of the UK-wide strategy Westminster, and it's mm. exactly the same, Mike. There's a huge backlog, especially around rape cases in particular, which are very difficult to prove. Uh, a whole range of reasons why this is the case. I mean, you mentioned the police force, for example. I yeah. mean, you know, if someone's being burgled right now, you phone the police and they make you wait. I mean, and it's just ridiculous. Yeah. We'll come after the crimes committed rather than come to stop the crime. I mean, you know, the world has changed so much when it comes to policing. That might be due to cuts. Uh, you know, there's a whole raft of reasons for that. But then after the police are involved, then you go to the courts, the prosecutors, the CPS. There's such a drag of waiting time. And that has been exasperated. Uh, it's been... It's, it's been suppose amplified mm. i should say by coronavirus and the lockdowns because yeah. they weren't even well, yeah. cooperate in the same way they closed a lot of courts but already even before that similar to the nhs i suppose you could say um, they were already in a in a bad place you know yeah, I, I think that there's a huge problem and the Justice Secretary's got a huge job on their hands because ultimately there are not enough cases being prosecuted that should be. I mean, that is clearly evident. And they're bringing out this scorecard. It's, it's like being back in school in there. A scorecard. So in each area, I think they're running as a pilot in certain parts of the country to determine how well the justice system is working from the police point of arrest to get into court to the actual prosecution itself. And as you've already pointed out, the figures are quite staggering. And it is a huge problem. But like the NHS, with long waiting times, we're seeing it in our justices services as well. And I I don't know if if the, the answer is a scorecard. I'm not convinced that that's going to work because it's already telling us mm. what we already know. The whole thing needs to be reformed, just like the NHS does as well, because it's an institution that has been failing for decades and someone needs to get a yeah. grip of it. And the other thing that's worrying, I suppose, is that of those cases that do go forward, something like a third of them actually never take place, either because people drop out uh, or they give up uh, or they don't want to take part in the, 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 the actual prosecution itself because of the trauma or what happens to them. So, I mean, all in all, the whole thing needs reform. Yeah, but what they are mentioning, Mike, is with that whole trauma aspect for victims, because the, the key person here is the victim, not the offender. I yeah. think they're talking about doing a pre-recording kind of interview with them, so it's not done in a court, so they don't have to wait to get to court to be able to, you know, share their story of, or their testimony. Uh, they, they're talking about recording it and then sending it to the CPS for them to look at it in that way. No, that might be a good way of doing it, approaching it, because for a lot of victims, they don't want to go through the trauma. If they've been already, you know, they've, if an offence has been committed against them, the last thing they want to do is stand in a, in a courtroom, yeah. you know, with people with wigs on. It's, it's right. quite daunting for people, and I can understand I mean, that. So maybe that I mean, is I, also, I know people who have been, say, for example, in situations where they've reported drug dealers to the police or something because they continually do deals on their street and they just want their kids to be able to walk up and down the street without fear or favour. And they're frightened to go into court because these drug dealers will probably not get a very stiff sentence. And the next thing you know, they'll be out uh, having a go at you and maybe burning your house down. Well, there's always that fear, isn't it? I, I work, I, one of my jobs, I don't know if you know, I'm a director for a rehabilitation centre based in Birmingham. So we work okay. with offenders. Right. And, uh, and we've seen both sides, the victim mm. uh, and the offender. Right. And 
I think the problem you've got in the justice system as well, not enough effort is put into rehabilitation. So I'm not defending the offender here, but there needs to be more investment from the government when it comes to, you know, rehabilitating people and supporting victims. I know they're putting, I think it's 400 million pounds into victim support, which is a welcome thing because they've been hanging on a string for so many years, handled from the government. And I, I welcome that decision of that money being invested because it's important for victims. They need that support. But there's both sides of this. As long as we've got offenders, there'll always be victims. So if we can help from both sides, I think that that's worth looking at. And the investment into rehabilitation, quite frankly, is appalling, mm. absolutely disgraceful. I know because I've worked in this sector for many, many years, Mike, and I know that there's not enough money going in to help people to change their ways of behaviour and their lifestyle so they don't commit offences. Yeah, and if you don't do that, then they'll just go out and do it again because in the end, that's the only way they've got of making ends meet, I'm afraid. Uh, stay where you are, Richard. We've got lots more to talk about. Richard Taylor's with us here, political commentator, host of Rich Politics. I want to talk to him about the e-scooter problem. I want to talk to him about a great deal of other things as well. This is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, the one place to be if you wish to hear common sense and if you wish to have the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth uh, hurled at you. Uh, this is the place to be to do it. Uh, Sarah says, uh, well, Ted, Derek from Dorset. They don't make people like him anymore. He has every right to be angry. And uh, that was Derek, of course, who rang up to say that his electricity bill and gas bill together are, are now going to come in at £3,600 a year. That's 300 quid a month. And that is absolutely unbelievable. Dodo says you can have free transport in the UK if you want your tax to subsidise it, even if you don't use it. Also, since COVID, there is very little privatised railway left in the UK, now mostly management contracts on behalf of the government. Well, the thing about the railway business in this country is that it is still subsidised by the government. It is still uh, got loads of public money going into it. And yet the prices for the tickets are still ridiculously high. And yet there are people who are taking millions and millions of pounds out of the system because they happen to be executives on various railway company boards. It's a shambles, like many things in this country. We're talking to Richard Taylor, political commentator, host of Rich Politics. Uh, Richard, we were just talking about a few different things this morning, including the fact that, uh, I don't know what you paid to come up to London on the, cho- on the train, um, but some guy went from Budapest to Vienna, uh, called us in and told us €23 Euros for two people. Absolutely extraordinary. I think we've got you muted for a moment. Can we hear you? Are we back? He's just not uh, just not there at the moment. I've got this um, from um, a, a tweeter who has sent in this. I was always hit by an e-scooter on the pavement the other day as I was walking to my flat. They are a menace. Well, they absolutely are a menace. And the problem with e-scooters, as we're going to discover later on as we go through the card, is that they're technically illegal, right? You're not supposed to have a privately owned e-scooter. You're allowed to hire them. You're allowed to get on them. You're allowed to use your credit card to pick one up but they are supposedly the ones which are controlled in terms of their speed and they're controlled in terms of what you do on them. But loads of people have got private ones. I think we've got Richard back. Richard? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, some people might be pleased I was moved in, Mike. I don't know. You know uh, <laughs> is it, you, you, I wasn't. <laughs> you, you mentioned the cost of trains coming down when I came to Plank the week earlier. Yeah. Um, it, it was interesting. Someone attacked me on Twitter. It was very interesting. Saying, oh, it must unusual. Be great. Yeah, <laughs> same as you. Uh, it must be great um, going down, having these free train rides down to London. I'm like, no. I think you muted yourself again. I don't know how you've managed it. He has muted himself again. We'll come back. Um, here's one from Glenn who says, Derek, what a call. This generation don't even know if they're male or female. Old age pensioners need looking after. 
I think that's absolutely right. Um, and they are the people who are going to be hurt the most by these tax uh, increases. They are the people who are going to be hurt the most by these electricity and gas prices. They are absolutely and utterly uh, in a terrible position, very much exposed, because if you are a pensioner, generally you're speaking uh, about people who are on a fixed income, they can't suddenly increase their uh, salaries or they can't suddenly do any more work in order to make more money, in order to pay for something which used to cost half of what it does now. £300 a month for an electricity and gas bill is extraordinary. And presumably for two people as well, living as they do uh, in a house in Dorset. Absolutely incredible. Um, Les says this. So the EU are replacing Russian fossil fuel with US fossil fuel. Wow, that will save the planet, won't it? Replace a gas pipeline with ships crossing the Atlantic full of US fracked gas. The UK could be supplying that. Well, that's true too. But there is an extraordinary state of affairs going on because we've now got suddenly the Americans telling the European Union that they shouldn't be as reliant on the Russians for gas. Well, surely they should have worked that one out for themselves, shouldn't they? 0344 499 1000 is the number. Coming up, Ben Clapworthy's here. We're going to be talking to him from the Times about the P&O situation, exactly what is happening, whether the government is going to stop the firings that they're planning to make, whether or not people who are being fired are going to get any more money in compensation, and whether anything can be done to just take the licence away from P&O ferries and give it to somebody else who will run it in a bit more of a responsible manner. We shall see. I don't think we're going to get Richard back, I'm afraid. So thanks very much to Richard uh, for talking to us earlier. Let's get some news headlines. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are now, of course, on your television as well. Apple TV, to be precise, Rakuten, Samsung TV, Buzz, Roku, YouTube. Now we're on Amazon Fire TV as well. So uh, if you want to watch us as well as listening to us, and why wouldn't you? Um, just before we launch Talk TV, which is going to be even more delightful, of course, uh, if you wish to do that, uh, all you've got to do is download the Talk Radio TV app or go to um, the um, talkradio.tv page and you can find it there as well. Loads more going on here. Uh, I'm delighted to say that coming up later on, we're going to be talking to Mark Bukowski about the royal family. Not just the royal family, though. I'm going to be asking him if the Commonwealth is dead and buried because a lot of Commonwealth countries apparently now don't really care much about the royal family. Not only do they not particularly want them to visit them, but when they do visit them, they'd rather like to have a bit of a demonstration about why they shouldn't be there. Uh, Prince William, of course, yesterday was apologising for slavery. So who knows what's going to happen next. But right now, uh, we're going to take a turn uh, for something a bit more serious. Ben Clatworthy is here, Transport Correspondent at The Times, of course. Ben, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. The P&O story is quite extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, you could never have really expected them to be so hopelessly kind of callous about the way that they decided to do all this. No, absolutely. I mean, it was last Thursday morning that they put out a quite bland statement that said, we've suspended all of our sailings pending a major announcement. Now, mm. some people thought they were about to go into administration. They were reacted very angrily to such suggestions. Um, and then after putting in a few calls, we discovered uh, at the Times that actually what they were about to do was fire all of their staff and replace them with a sort of shadow work. Right force that they got and when when i told the the news desk this they they would honestly like no go away and check like, <laughs> like, it was no the- <laughs> i'm the same i mean we spoke to you i think the day that it happened yes and and 
originally the, with the breaking news being that there was an announcement coming, you assumed um, automatically that they were probably going bankrupt or something, <laughs> right? You didn't assume that they were going to fire everybody. <laughs> no, and and honestly, it was it was one of the and you, you know often you you don't often sort of doubt your sources and so on, but it was one of those moments where you think, okay, fine, and then sure enough, started to get messages from affected workers mm. saying, yes, this is what's happened, and the way it was done, Microsoft Teams, utterly brutal. Yeah. Yesterday, the boss, uh, Peter Hebbleswaite, appeared in front of MPs, and to say he had a, a grilling would mm. be the understatement of the year, yes. I think. Well, I think we have a little bit of that uh, right now. Let's have a listen. There's absolutely no doubt that we were required to consult with the unions. We chose not to do that because we believe... You chose to break the law. Because we chose not to consult and we will com- and we are and will compensate everybody in full for that. I recognise that this is a really... When you get in your car and drive down the motorway and you see the 70 mile an hour sign, do you decide that that's not going to apply to me, I'm going to do 90 uh, because I think it's important that I do that? Is that how you go about your life? No. No, it isn't. Did- well, um... Oh, Dandy McDonald, not too happy there. Uh, we chose not to consult with the unions. I mean, it's an interesting sort of scenario, isn't it? Because there's not a law that says you have to, is there? Well, this is where uh, the government have tied themselves in knots mm. this week. Mm. Um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson stood up in the Commons saying uh, that they, they had categorically broken the law, that they would face unlimited fines. Yeah. Uh, one government uh, insider said to me very shortly after that that actually they distanced themselves, maybe he'd overstepped the mark. Now, mm. obviously, what we did have is... Uh, Peter, they're saying uh, that they have broken the law. They've actually broken employment law. They mm. haven't. The way that our uh, criminal law, they have not broken criminal law right. because they didn't tell the government in advance of doing this because of a quirk mm. that changed in 2018. It gets extremely technical. I've been speaking to lawyers, our legal editor about it. It's not, It's you know, it is a murky It's not straightforward. Because I was led to believe, after you and I spoke the first time, that somehow they're subject to different types of law depending on where the, the boat is, is registered, uh, where the company's registered, where the contracts are registered, all of which seem to be offshore somewhere. Well, exactly. The ships largely were registered in Cyprus. Yeah. The uh, employees were all on Jersey contracts. Right. Um, because of the ships being registered overseas, they needed to inform Cypriot authorities of their plans to sack uh, these any number of workers over 100, which yeah. affected here 800. Uh, they didn't do that, but that's not something that we as a, the UK can uh, get upset about mm. and also failing to do that. Yes, it is in UK law, but it doesn't bring a criminal sanction with it, let alone unlimited right. fines. Um, the other uh, thing is that ultimately what they've tried to do is silence workers. They've done what can, you cannot deny is a generous redundancy package, mm. what they're offering. But with that comes effectively an NDA. Mm. You're signing your rights away. The unions are rightfully furious. Uh, Mick Lynch, the uh, chief executive of the RMT, appeared at the same select committee yesterday and he said that ultimately uh, British employment law was a shambles uh, and that the way that these workers have been exposed should not have been allowed to happen, um, which you can't argue with You that. really can't, no. But, I mean, uh, tragically, if the British government can't protect them, then it could happen again. I mean, not so much to anybody working for a foreign-based company, but certainly to anyone working for a shipping company, it would seem. Well, exactly, and that's the difference. If if you are employed by a UK-based proper normal, say you're sitting in your office at the moment, your company doesn't use offshore right. ways around, had they carried out the same 
uh, process and there were more than 100 employees, mm. they could face unlimited fines. They could get hauled in front mm. of the courts. The way that shipping works is such a sort of confusing, complicated industry yeah. uh, uh, protected by different laws. It's nowhere near as clear cut, which for workers' rights is appalling. We yeah. do see it. We see the same practices in the cruise industry where people are paid yeah. very little money. These workers now are paid on average £5.50 an hour. Again, uh, one of the MPs asked, uh, so uh, Mr Lynch, were, were the uh, workers of your RMT members paid more than the minimum or living wage? And he, he audibly laughed. He's like, yes, they were paid a decent wage that's been negotiated by the unions. Mm. That's been torn up. Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary this morning, says that they're going to change the law and force P&O in ferries into a U-turn. It's worth noting and just saying this is P&O ferries, yes, not P&O cruises, completely right? different yeah. companies. Um, Although for, they mustn't be too happy about the fact that their similarly named company is in this kind of situation where people might be boycotting them. Just this morning they've launched an advert saying Have that they? they've had uh, <laughs> many messages over the last week right. uh, relating to a different company and mm. that they've been happily owned by Carnival Cruises for the last 20 years. They yeah. are different different companies. Um, but Grant Shapps this morning, the Transport Secretary, says he is going to force P&O into a U-turn. Mm. People I've spoken to this morning are struggling to see, even if they bring minimum wage requirements in and make it uh, applicable in international waters for ships sailing from British ports, how they're going to force P&O into a U-turn, bar just having to pay their agency mm. workers more, is yet to be seen. No, quite. And some people have asked me whether there's a licence involved in running a ferrying service between parts of Britain and other parts of Europe, for example. Is that the case? Do you need a licence from the government? Because people have said, surely if they need a licence, maybe the government could just pull the licence. It doesn't work like that, sadly. The, the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency can carry out inspections of ships, so they are doing that before they're allowed to sail again mm. to check that the crew are, are suitably qualified right. and able to operate. It's not the case, uh, and I've had people messaging me as well saying... Uh, why can't they apply this? Mm. They can do it to Russian oligarchs and yes. their yachts, use the same laws. It doesn't work like that because it is just very complicated. I mean, I suppose in the end, uh, given that we are still, roughly speaking, living in a democracy, you don't really necessarily want the government to have all sorts of powers to seize all sorts of things uh, without quite a complicated process. No, exactly. And I think that is, you know, while there's a lot of anger about yeah. the way that happens, actually, if you do feel really strongly about it, the simple answer is don't travel with P&O ferries. And that means, and this is where uh, the British public does have a sometimes short memory, mm. that does also mean that when you go to book your uh, summer holiday from Dover to, to France, be it Calais or wherever, yeah. that you don't just look for the cheapest operator right. and then go, oh, but P&O are now cheaper because they're paying their mm. staff £5.50 an hour. It means going with another operator, voting with your feet. Yeah. If you have a business that relies on their freight service, don't use it. And that's when uh, Mr Hethelwaite and his 325 grand salary and two bonuses mm. will suddenly find that he's not getting that money because there won't be any passengers on his ships. Right. And are they still suspended at the moment, the services? They're sailing between uh, Liverpool and Dublin at the moment. Okay. All other services are suspended. The uh, Pride of Hull ferry, uh, which sails from Hull to Rotterdam, uh, has been approved by the British Coast Guard to resume sailing. Mm. It's now in Rotterdam going through the same process with Dutch authorities. Um, where they are with the Dover to Calais route, we don't know yet. Yesterday, 
the maritime agency said they hadn't been contacted about carrying out assessments on those ships. And also, while we're obviously very, uh, you know, the key thing here is the 800 employees, mm. uh, again, going back to uh, voting with the public's feet, look at the way they just said, we've suspended our sailing. Yeah. There were people that were travelling to funerals. Yeah. There were people that were travelling to family weddings last weekend that on Thursday. Mm. Sorry, we've suspended our sailings. Yeah. If that's the way a company treats its customers and its staff, do you want to travel yes, with them? Yes, I think that is obviously the problem. And also the fact that they may well be, um, you know, perhaps at the very least vulnerable to all manner of different things like, um, you know, union activity you might have trouble getting on a ferry mm -hmm. because there might be some demonstration going on you know you might not fancy going under those circumstances even if you didn't care that they were callous you might just find it all a bit kind of too much to deal with well yes and you may you may uh, you may think as well that whichever way you look at it and yes they are experienced crew the the uh, P&A were very keen to say that but at the same time if you're traveling in the English Channel, that's the world's busiest yes. shipping lane. Yes. These are the seafarers, some of whom with 30 years experience mm. of navigating that stretch of yep. water, replaced overnight with, yes, I'm sure, accomplished uh, sailors, but not in the world's busiest shipping no, channel. I think that's a very good point as well. Ben, good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Ben Clatworthy from The Times there with an update on the P&O situation. It doesn't appear to be very cut and dry, does it? I mean, obviously, nobody would want to see this sort of thing going on on a regular basis. But whether the government can do anything about it, uh, it still seems to be up in the air, I'm afraid. We'll take some calls, though. 0344 is the number. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smartphone. Smart Speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid morning with Mike Graham, Talk Radio.